there's no way to recreate what was. So I just want to uh, concentrate on making the very best that we can do now. You're listening to Barrel Talk, a podcast diving deep into what drives leaders in the whiskey industry. My name is Kevin Bridge. I'm a photographer and whiskey enthusiast. I'm sitting down with people who dedicated their lives to whiskey to hear their stories and why they're so passionate about their craft. The name Beam is one of the most recognizable names in whiskey. So as young kids growing up in Kentucky, Stephen Beam and his brother Paul had a good idea of who their ancestors were. But it isn't just about the Beams. Stephen is from two families whose history is closely tied to the history of American bourbon. So when they started their own distillery, Limestone Branch, it was important to them to pay homage to their relatives who spent years to become masters of their craft. Whiskey is your family business. And with the last name Beam, I think most people would recognize that. What was it like growing up with the last name Beam in Kentucky? Well, you know, growing up, I didn't really grow up in the business. I grew up around the business. You know, I had aunts and uncles and everybody involved. Uh, Booker was a very good friend of my uh, uncle. So, like I said, I was around it, but not, I didn't really realize how close we were and how I didn't find out about minor case until much later in life. So um, it was kind of like people would always say, are you related to Jim Bean? And I had to have to just say, you know, well, sort of, kind of, it's a long story. Uh, but, and that's about as far as it went. Um, it was, it's interesting though. Uh, my mother, who was J.W. Dance, great granddaughter, was very, adamant about teaching me about the Dant family history and uh the and Dant the Dant name and uh that he was a distiller so I really became interested in the the distilling and the distilling family from the Dant side and then it spilled over and then I started researching in the Beam side. And so a lot of people recognize the Beam name and you walk into any liquor store in America or in the world and you're going to see a bottle of Jim Beam on the shelf. But a lot of people, especially people that aren't really well versed in whiskey history, don't really know the dance name. Do you want to kind of dig into the history there a little bit? Sure. So J.W. Dan was another pioneer distiller in Kentucky and he started in 1836, uh, and he started out and uh, started distilling for uh, you know farm farmers around him. But he did very well. He he made a great product and grew the business and became very successful. He had seven sons who were all uh, followed him in the distilling business and master distillers, including my great uh, great grandfather. Um, and, and his the oldest son, Bernard Dance, started Yellowstone. So uh, right after Prohibition, the Dance was one of the most, in, Dance were one of the most influential uh, families in uh, American, uh, you know, in bourbon, in Kentucky bourbon. So um, 
it, it, but they got out of the soy got out of the business over the next you know from uh by the 1960s most of the dance had were completely out of out of the uh business so it's kind of one of those lost uh names you know like there's so many there's so many uh, in the bourbon history that are you know lost names like that so you you mentioned you were kind of more well versed in the dance side of things when, when you were growing up. Um, is there a reason for that? Well, like I said, my mom was very uh, she uh, she knew the history of the uh, the dance, and she she would take me out to the, the distillery. There was uh, an old distillery right by her home place, so when we would go out there, we would ride by that. Uh, and that was an old distillery where she had worked in high school. Uh, and it come to find out that that had, was the Yellowstone distillery. It had been minor case beams distillery, but nobody really ever talked about that. So it, it was really kind of one of those things that was, you know, bourbon, I grew up, you know, sixties and seventies and bourbon w- was very popular. Um, but it was just kind of one of those, uh, things that was there. It's just, I don't think people uh, appreciate what appreciated what we had in Kentucky at that time. And uh, there weren't celebrity, you know, master distillers or, you know, celebrity uh, distilling people and brand ambassadors, you know, like celebrity chefs, you know, it was just, it was a job and it was a a rather hard job. Uh, And so uh, it certainly wasn't, the the glamour what everybody still isn't but <laughs> what people think of and so with all that family history when you were growing up were you interested in getting into the bourbon business or were you kind of turned off by i wanted to do the opposite oh it, it it intrigued me and i was always interested in it uh from a very young age because i always felt like you know, I'd say, well, what happened? And it was prohibition ended. You know, prohibition is where where everything stopped. So for me, it was always, I always felt like we were cheated out of our, you know, our history from prohibition. And so it was something that I always wanted to, to get back in. I had no idea, you know, how on earth it, I would do that. I, I, actually looked into it right after college and that would have been 1980. And, um, but it was really financially almost impossible to, to, uh, to open it a story at that time. You know, first bourbon was kind of had peaked and was kind of descending. Uh, there was no internet. So any advertising or to, to get the word out would have all had to have been very expensive print. Uh, it was just just a lot of obstacles. So I, I shelved that idea and always thought it was something that I would try to dabble in later in life. And then, uh, and then you know, the rise of the smaller distilleries and, and laws that came around that made it more feasible for a smaller store. You know, early on, you had to have a uh, gauger, a government gauger, at the distillery site. So you, you, you had a government uh, gentleman who are, that had a key to the distillery 
and you had a key. And so you both have to open the key to get, you know, the, the story together. They, they, they monitored all the uh, ebb and flow of the distillery and, and checked to make sure that there was nothing going out the back door. So that all changed and, and that made it more accessible for the smaller stories as well. And so you said you thought about it right out of college and, but it was nearly impossible to do so on kind of starting from scratch almost. So what did you do instead and how did you end up getting into the distillery? business. Well, I, I came, it came around about way. So, so, so in school, I'd always been interested in, in uh, horticulture. And so um, I, in school, I studied landscape architecture. So I went on in that career and did, had a design built company. And I was in Atlanta, Georgia and in Miami, Florida. And then as my parents got older, um, I wanted to go back to Kentucky you know, to, to, to hang out with them for a while, and uh, which was really one of the best decisions I ever made. So I came back to Kentucky, but to, to start a landscape business and everything from scratch was, was just daunting, to say the least. And my brother had been in the restaurant business um, and in a local chain there in Louisville, and uh, one of the restaurants came up for sale. So I kind of bought my bought in with him and um and parked myself there for a while and uh, that was a uh, quite an experience so um and but uh, like i said i was always interested in the distilling and then i became interested in uh you know going out and, and visiting uh distilleries and, and bourbon at that time and um then i i came across the uh, american distilling institute uh which is a organization that helps uh, people who are interested in, in opening distilleries. It's a, a storehouse of information and, and different things. So, uh, and I went on and back then the two is old message boards and things that wasn't anything like what we have today, <laughs> but uh, so I, they had a convention in Louisville and I went to that and I, I was bit by the bug and I was, I was like, we can do this, you know, we, we can do this. So, uh, I told my brother, I said, we need to, if, if we're going to do this, it's now or never. And, um, and that was in April by October, I had sold the restaurant and gone full into opening the distillery, which I knew very little about, but, uh, and, uh, so I jumped out with, you know, hoping the parachute would open. <laughs> and what year was this? Um, uh, that was 2008. Okay. And so when were you able to open doors on your distillery, the limestone? Uh, 2011. Okay. So what were those early days between 2008 and 2011? Like what you were building oh, it, a distillery from scratch. What, right. what was it like? Just, you know, buying every single book on distilling that I could get my hands on talking to everybody that I knew I'd met quite a few people from, uh, the organization. So, uh, uh, you know, back in like Chip Tate and they, people, you know, that go way back into it, that, but that I would talk to and, and, and know. And so it was just a lot of, uh, of learning, you know, a, a huge learning curve. I, uh, went out to uh, 
different small distilleries and participated. I had a friend uh, whose family had been in the, the moonshine end of it for a long time. And uh, he helped immensely because he helped at the scale that we were doing. You know, you had a lot of the, there wasn't, it was like the wild west at that time. It really was. It was, it was kind of crazy because, you know, everything from still manufacturers to bottling, you know, bottles and, and different things, just it is a whole different world. But um, anyway, the, the gentleman whose family had done the moon training, they did it on a scale, you know, of a few hundred gallons at a time, which the engineers from these large distilleries had no concept of, you know, yeah. they, they, they just didn't know how to do it at that scale. Yeah. You know, they, they had the theory, but, you know, implementing it was, was, and so um, it was, it was very, very, that, that was very helpful. Now, and, uh, yeah. What were some of the challenges of working on a smaller scale? There were no, there was no one make very few people making pot still small, you know, small stills. Uh, ben Dome had just started into to making small uh, stills and they, they were not really uh, doing much with the small stills at that time. Uh, and I mean, I remember talking to Mr. Sherman and he was like, yeah, you know, a lot of people getting into this craft thing, but I'm not sure if it's going to make it or <laughs> it's just a fad or, you know, <laughs> so that was about 2000, probably about 2009, 2010. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, so very few. So I had to search this out stills. Uh, we actually had, we made equipment, you know, out of different, um, uh, containers and things so you know, and, and as far as stock bottles you know there were very few stock bottles that a that uh, a small distillery could buy uh now the the the, the uh, range is just tremendous but back then it's you know just a very few so no and, and one other thing too when i would go to like Nelson County or different counties and talk to them about opening a distillery, they would immediately think that we were opening, you know, they wanted, we wanted to open this huge thing. They had no <laughs> concept of what a small distillery was. Yeah. Nobody knew what a small distillery was. And, uh, and uh, a lot of, a lot of counties who are interest, very interested now were not interested then. And, uh, but Marion County was very interested and, in, and, in, and in very interested instrumental in helping us as well. So in 2011, you opened the doors on limestone branch distillery. What was your first product? Our first product was a corn whiskey, okay. uh, an unaged corn whiskey, you know, uh, moonshine, uh, which I, I'm very proud of that. We won a gold medal at the American distilling Institute from that. And um, so the very first thing we did at, at limestone, won a, won a gold medal in, in the, uh, organization. So that was, I was happy about that. But then we went to a sugar shine, which is a corn and sugar mash. And so we did moonshine thing. We always made a little bit of bourbon, but we, we were paying bills with the moonshine. Yeah. Now, is that the reason why you started with the moonshine just, just to pay the bills and was the goal always to get to a bourbon? Yes. The, the goal was always to be uh, uh, bourbon forward because that's, you know, where our heritage was and that's what we wanted to do. Uh, but 
moonshine was having a moment at that time and uh it was popular and we rode that wave a little bit and uh, it helped us finance us down the road with with the bourbon and so you mentioned that you were making you were always making bourbon just a little bit at a time so right. you were probably uh putting it in barrels and let it start starting to let it age. Did you know what the bourbon, what bourbon you wanted to release when you eventually did? And when did you actually release that? Um, we still have yet to release our bottled and bond. Okay. Uh, we've done, we've done blending into the, uh, uh, the Yellowstone uh, select, which is our four and seven year old bourbon. So we blend some of ours into that and that kind of eats up a lot of our product uh, since we made so little of in the beginning. So we'll have a six year bottled and bond out at some point in the relatively near future. Uh, and that'd be some of the first barrels that we, where we actually have enough to, to get out into the market. So. Okay. And so you mentioned your flagship whiskey right now is the Yellowstone. Um, and that the Yellowstone name has been in the family, correct? Correct. And so what, what was the history behind that brand? Right. So Yellowstone, I mean, that is, is, is just so, I mean, it, it deep into my roots and my family's roots, it, it's, it's insane. And that was always one of the goals as well of wanting to bring back one of the brands into the family. So uh, Yellowstone was there, uh, but Yellowstone uh, was founded by Bernard Dan. Uh, he had a distillery cold spring and he became, he was a uh, supplier to a rectifier in Louisville called Taylor and Williams. And Taylor and Williams um, had, a, had salespeople out. One of the salespeople came back. And was like, you know, everybody is really excited about this new national park, Yellowstone, uh, especially out west. And if, if we were to brand one of our bourbons Yellowstone, it would we'd, we'd sell a lot of bourbon. So <laughs> they uh, they did. They they branded uh, Yellowstone as one of their brands, and it quickly became their best selling brand. And uh, that was Taylor and Williams, and and Bernard Dant had Cold Spring, and he was supplying the whiskey. And then as Taylor and Williams retired out of the business, Bernard Dant bought Taylor and Williams and merged uh, the two together. So Taylor and Williams became Yellowstone. Uh, that was back before prohibition when there wasn't the, uh, there wasn't the, the tears that you have now, you know, the barriers between, you know, being a distributor and, uh, and being a producer. Why was it so important for you to bring this specific um, label back? So, so Yellowstone was what I grew up with in our house. It, it, it was sold out of our family in the 40s, but it, I still had a lot of family members who worked there. And it's what I remember. Uh, even more so, we always had a bottle of Jim Beam and we always had Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. And uh, But Yellowstone, because it entered on both sides of my family, uh, the dance side, my mom's side and my grandmother's side 
of course, uh, Bernard Damp founded it. He had a son, Mike Damp, who took over. And Mike uh, married my other grandmother's sister. So it, it became the beams and the dance became related. You know, brother, my, my grandfather and Mike Damp became brother-in-laws. So it was, uh, you know, it, it was just both sides of the family collaborate, collaborated on Yellowstone early on. And so, like I said, it was just entrenched in both, both sides. So it was, it was really uh, great. And I, and I, you know, I'm a blend of Dant and Beam and, and so was Yellowstone. So it was <laughs> like just that. a natural fit. I like that. And <laughs> uh, even further, like it is all limestone branch is all about the family history and even your other whiskey, your straight rye whiskey is also named after um, part, part of your family history, um, minor case. Who was he and how, how did he not only shape your family's whiskey history, but whiskey history in America? Yeah, you know, so growing up, I didn't know a lot about minor case. Uh, you know, my dad would mention him in passing or here and there, but nobody really talked about him too much. And, and um, as I began doing the research on, on our family and the bean history, uh, it, it became evident that Minor Case, you know, was a, a prominent distiller in his day. He was actually the patriarch of that generation. He was Jim Bean's first cousin. Uh, he was trained under his uncle Jack at early times. And um, one of the few beans to actually ever own a distillery, uh, Jim Bean, Minor Case, um, yeah, Jack Bean. Yeah, they, so there was he he was instrumental in so many brands and has ties if you go back it, it's insane because uh minor case trained under his uncle jack at early times and then uh bought into a distillery and then bought a the distillery in uh 1888 and right around there and had it until the early 1900s. And, um, but he, his younger brother, Joe, trained under him and became his master distiller. And while Minor Case would die shortly after Prohibition ended, Joe Bean and his seven sons and my grandfather, who was like one of the sons, were instrumental in reviving the bourbon industry in Kentucky. So when you hear of all those beams, and, and even though people aren't familiar with, uh, you know, the other beams, but they, they do hear like Maker's Mark had a beam distiller. Four Roses had a, a beam distiller. Mickner's had a, a, a beam distiller. You know, all these uh, distilleries that had beams as distillers were from our side of the family. I said we were kind of nomads after Prohibition because we didn't have a uh, a distillery of our own, so we were out working in all these other other distilleries. So, uh, like sixty, there's sixty three different brands uh, tied go back into the Bean family, and a, a lot of good portion of that is from uh, Minor Case and his brother Joe. And so, 
obviously that 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 is the reason why it's so important to remember minor case in his in in Jarl's rye whiskey and probably the reason why you decided to name it after him so what's the timeline you start in 2011 with your moonshine when do you release um yellowstone and minor case so in 2015 we partnered with luxco who had bought the yellowstone brand so yellowstone was sold out of the dant family in 1944 to glenmore which was a thompson family and Glenmore owned it from 1944 until 1992 when they sold to United Distillers. Shortly after um, they sold to United Distillers, they United merged with Guinness and became Diageo. Diageo was like, we don't want to be in the bourbon business. And they closed the uh, Yellowstone Distillery down and sold off all the brands except for uh, the one that they have now. But uh, so that is when uh, Luxco bought, you know, Rebel Yell and Yellowstone and Ezra Brooks and David Nicholson, a lot of Luxco's brands. Mm-hmm. And so um, I like I said, I was interested in bringing one of the brands back. So I started corresponding with Don Lux and, uh, you know, we eventually worked out a deal and they bought part of our distillery. And in that deal, the Yellowstone intellectual property and and came to limestone branch. And so I reformulated it at that time to what we have now our Yellowstone select. And that was in 2015. Okay. And what, what was it like to bring in a partner? Like all of a sudden you're no longer, the only, you and your brother are no longer the only ones on top. You also have someone else to answer to. What was it? What was it like to make that switch in 2015? Well, they they were uh, they were very good partner. So uh, and they they allowed me to do the to they were fairly hands off on the distilling part of it. They you know contributed to. Um, increasing our production, you know, and, and, and modernizing the distillery, uh, which we're, we continue to do and, uh, and handled all the sales and distribution, which was fantastic because before we merged with them, we were in seven States and most of my time was spent doing government paperwork. And so that allowed for that partnership allowed me to go back into distilling, um, and and devote, devote my time to actual distilling products. So, but the 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 thing, the difficulty, the only difficulty wasn't really that big of a deal. But it's just, I was just used to making a decision, you know, and not having to, to run it through anybody, you know. Yeah. And so it took me a little while to get the channels, you know, of. Uh, we need to talk to this person first, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, and then we can agree on it, but you know, just, you can't just say, okay, we're going to do this. <laughs> and so that, that took a little, little bit of getting used to, but like I said, they were very, very good and easy partners to work with and, and uh, allowed uh, our, our distillery to grow at a rate that uh, we, we would never have been able to accomplish in our, my brother and I's lifetime probably. So, 
what is um how similar is today's Yellowstone to what um was being made bef- when the brand was originally out before prohibition? So we use the original mash bill. We have a, a yeast strain that we're able to trace back uh, through a yeast jug to, to minor case. Uh, and we know that the, the beans and dance were sharing different things. And I know like so my grandfather was a distiller there at uh, Yellowstone. But anyway, so we, we pay homage to that through the yeast we do a heirloom corn that was available around that time. We use a white corn. Uh, we use a mash fill. We use similar techniques. So I, I say I'm a steward for the brand at this moment in time. And I, I pay respect to that, but there's no way I can recreate what mm-hmm. was, you know, every distillery is different. They have, we have our own microflora, our own microclimates. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, there's no way to recreate what was. So I just want to uh, concentrate on making the very best that we can do now. But the old Yellowstone, like so many of the old uh, whiskeys, uh, had that real, it was a kind of a heavy uh, cherry cough note, syrup note, in a good way. Mm-hmm. And uh you know, I've talked to Mike Beach and different people about uh, what, what, where we think that that came from, and, and nobody's really been able to pin all that down. But the, the whiskeys of the 1940s don't taste like the whiskey, the bourbons of today. Uh, so, yeah. even though, like I said, we're doing very, very similar techniques. And today, the Yellowstone that is out today is a very classic bourbon taste right absolutely absolutely it is it is what i remember bourbon when i was young and i didn't really drink too much bourbon when i was young (laughs) but but i remember the smell you know and uh and my mom we did have uh toddies when we were you know i had a cough or something so you know i i have a, a, a little bit of a memory of that but uh but Definitely, the the nose, you know, is is very similar, and it's a very Yellowstone is a very classic Kentucky bourbon. When when we started this conversation, you mentioned that your official title is master distiller, but it's something that you said that you pushed back on a little bit. Explain why. Well, you know, out of respect for my. Uh, grandfather and great grandfather and all of them from there on back because they they spent their lives in the distillery you know minor case started when he was 14 i'm sure guy started about the same time as well and and grew up in the distillery and they were true true masters of the craft i mean they uh after prohibition my dad said the architects and engineers would come and sit with guy uh, at the table and go when they were building all these new distilleries after prohibition and, you know, go over, you know, the size of the pipes and the size of the mash tubs and all the different things. Cause they, they had no clue, but he, and it, through all my research and everything that I did way back when I can do that as well. And I'd sized all the equipment for limestone from the very beginning, but, uh, but it was really just, you know, I felt like I needed to, to put my time in 
you know, before you call yourself a master of anything, you know. And um, so now it's been been 10 years. So I think that's um, I know that minor case started when he was uh, 14. And by the time he was 28, he was a master distiller. And I think Jacob was about 10 years. So, you know, that 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 seems like a, a good time that uh, that we can use that term, although I use it uh, sparingly. I would say 10 years in the distilling business is enough time to to make yourself a master distiller. Um, through, through the several distillers that I've talked to, 2020 has been a hard year for a lot of people, but in the whiskey industry specifically, a lot of them have seen a boom. And while it has become harder to distill, whiskey's flying off the shelves for a lot of people. Is that something that you've seen yourself? Yes, we, we kind of had the perfect storm, honestly, uh, because you know, so we, Yellowstone has always been more off-premise, so we, we're more uh, concentrated with uh, liquor stores and that than on-premise in bars and, and restaurants, which we've worked on, but we, we kind of focused on our uh, – like I said, liquor stores and, and that type. Mm-hmm. So that, that was where we were already focused. And, and that was what obviously were, were the, uh, the sales were, but then also the Yellowstone show became one of the most popular shows uh, of that, you know, everybody was stuck inside watching TV yeah. and, and watching different things. And so, and we advertised on, on the show and so that uh, propelled uh, Yellowstone. It, it just it, it, it cleared the shelves. We we actually were uh, low on glass because we were not anticipating that. So you know why while I feel so much for our friends who had you know the bars and restaurants and how much they they've suffered. You know, but uh, for us the the business has been. Uh, been good. We closed our gift shop for about 10 weeks. And uh, so, but since it was opened back up in July, we've been busy. So people, people want to get out and uh, you know, we've been uh, watching, you know, COVID correct, but, um, and at 25% capacity, but you know, people want to get out and they, they, I, I think they feel like they can you know travel in their car be in a small group and, and not, uh, and, and actually get out and do something. So the, the bourbon trail has been, you know, good for us. Good. And so where, uh, how far do you distribute across the U S we're in all 50 States, okay. uh, in Canada and uh, at, at least a dozen different countries. It, it kind of changes because we use distributors and so they'll sell into different countries so it's kind of hard to, to know exactly the countries all the time, but I know we were in the UK, you know, France, uh, Germany, and, and many other countries as well, Australia. Uh, so, so this is, this will be my last question. And it's the question I ask, uh, all the guests is it doesn't have to be one of limestone branches, whiskeys, but it can be any whiskey. What, if you were to sit down on a Saturday afternoon and you're pulling out a bottle of, bottle to drink, 
what is your go-to? What is your favorite? Wow. Well, when people always ask about our brands, it, I, I always say, you know, it depends on the, the situation. Okay. So on a Saturday afternoon, because, you know, it, it, it changes, you know, if it's warm or cool or, yeah. uh, because I, I'll drink a lighter whiskey if it's hot and if it's, if it's cold, you know, I, I tend to drink, a, you know, a little bit heavier whiskey, but, um, you know, I go with our uh, Yellowstone, Yellowstone Select many, many times. That's my, my go-to, which is our 93 proof. Um, if I'm going to drink someone else's whiskey, um, I like Four Roses single barrels an awful lot. Okay. Uh, um, you know, some of the older, the Knob Creek nine-year-old was is, was a good, good uh, solid pour. No, I'm, 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 and I'm talking about things that people can get. Yeah, you know, yeah, of course. Some unicorn that uh, you know that I can say, well, you know that, but but really, I'm there's so many good bourbons out there. My sweet spot, I will say, is six to twelve years old, maybe okay. fifteen. You know, I like that age group. Uh, I'm not into a really heavily aged uh a bourbon no i i tend to like sweet and lighter notes and as you know bourbon ages you tend to lose some of that sweetness and uh it becomes more about the barrel uh than the grain and and some of (laughs) so during our conversation steven mentioned they are welcoming anyone who wanted to visit to the distillery they're located on the bourbon trail in lebanon kentucky they do have tours of the distillery so you can see the whiskey making process in person. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. It helps the show grow so that more people can learn about the stories behind their favorite whiskeys. You're listening to Barrel Talk.